All right, if you would turn in, uh, excuse me, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number uh, 10, or excuse me, 11 is where we are this week. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, beginning with verse number 2, and uh, it's good to see everybody today. Uh, uh, as we were praying earlier, I heard lots of coughing and stuff. I'm still there myself, so I totally get it, and um, just bear with me. Bear with me, but uh, one of the uh, realities that we commit to is that the Bible is inerrant, inerrant, I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T. The idea is that the scripture as it was given to us, and people usually say in its original autographs, has been inspired by God. Uh, scripture says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word that is there is uh, God-breathed, inspiration, that God has uh, given to us his word. So all scripture is given by uh, inspiration of God and is profitable, the Bible says, for uh, teaching and for uh, building us up in discipleship. So uh, that's why, and I say this very frequently, that the approach I'm taking is to go verse by verse through uh, books of the Bible. Because we believe that the scripture is inspired. If it's inspired, we need to know what it says. And it needs to shape our lives. But what I find is that sometimes we'll encounter passages like the one today that are difficult. And so I'd say that this is a very difficult passage. And uh, what I hope to do today is to help us to, um, to get the big idea that God had for us that's timeless. And that will always uh, be, uh, well, the scripture is relevant. But we're going to learn some things together today as we encounter the text. And here the Bible says that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you, or the apostolic teaching. That's what he says. When he says tradition here, he's talking about the word of God delivered and and handed off generation by generation, congregation by congregation. So tradition there shouldn't throw us. What he's talking about is the accepted set of teaching that guides the church in its uh, practice and understanding its theology. He says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. Now some translations like the ESV, uh, ESV will say the head of the wife is her husband which I think is the accurate uh, understanding as we're going to get into. The head of a, a woman is the, this new King James Version says man, and the head of Christ is God. So I want to stop there for a second too. The head of Christ is God is confusing in a sense because we say the, we, we commit to the idea that God exists in three persons, co-equal. That there's no uh, hierarchy in the... Uh, Trinity, and we commit to a Trinitarian understanding of God's person. We talk about God as a Godhead. That's the idea, that God exists in uh, three persons and that each person is, is equal. Jesus, when he was on earth, said, I and my Father are one. So in essence, uh, they're equal. And that helps us to think about the idea of headship that we're going to talk about a little bit today. When you think about husbands and wives in marriage, that same equality would be true. The same equality that is true in the Godhead 
is true in uh, commitment in marriage. In fact, your wife probably is smarter than you, if the truth is known. Good possibility that that's true. But the scripture is uh, saying some things that are important but are hard for us to grasp uh, when it talks about the, the idea of uh, uh, Christ, the head of Christ being God. Every man praying or prophesying, it says, having his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her, her head uncovered dishonors her head for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. So I'm going to stop and uh, make comments while I'm reading the text because I'm not going to touch on all of this in the passage. But in their context, a woman whose head was shaved, it was a uh, public rebuke for adultery. So that's not how it works in our culture. It would be uneven and unfair. It was uneven and unfair in their culture, but it was the existing practice that if a woman had been caught in adultery, her head might be shorn as a way of communicating that. So we would say, man, that's uh, unfair, but it was their reality. And so uh, when it talks about head coverings, we're going to see that there are some practices here, again, that are difficult for us to uh, think about. We'll touch on. He says, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And that's pretty confusing. <laughs> a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And uh, probably the best idea about this that I read in my preparation was that, you know, when we gather, there, uh, the Bible says in one place about angels that uh, we should practice hospitality because some people have unwittingly entertained angels or entertained angels unaware. The idea is that uh, angelic forces are real in an invisible realm and that they maybe attend our worship service just like other people are attending our worship service. That's the best sense I get for the idea of what it means that uh, because of the angels, uh, a person ought, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Nevertheless, neither is a man independent or woman nor woman independent of man in, in the Lord. For as the woman was from the man, even so man also is through the woman, but all things are from, from God. So really the idea there is when God created humans, he made a, a male first, according to the biblical narrative. I mean, if you read Genesis, that's what it says, that God made a male first, and the woman came from him and was a helper, it says, suitable to him. So, again, throw away the idea of equality. It's talking about the order of how things occurred and the purpose that God had in that order for men and women. And so the Bible says, afterward, however, every man came from a woman, correct? I mean, that's how it happens now. So at first it was this way, and, and God basically says, you're not interdependent. God made it so that there's a compatibility and a need. And he intended, as he said, he created uh, male and female. 
So that's obvious and clear. And our understanding as Christians is that God created the world and he gives it order. And we'll touch on this a little bit more. But this is a difficult passage. And if you say it's not, I want you to take me to lunch this week and explain it to me more clearly than I got it as I was trying to um, study this week. So we'll get into some ideas here. But I just say, to me, when I read this at first, I'm like, wow, this is a really hard passage. And he says there, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature teach itself, uh, teach, itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And verse 16, as I read it, gets translated several different ways by different Bible translations. So it's a tough passage, and we're just going to dive in. And I think one thing, as I try to study and read each week, here's what I do. I go, what's the big idea here? And uh, let me pray real quick. God, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you for its uh, truth and relevance. And in passages like this, we uh, pray that you'll give us uh, the sense of its inspiration and a commitment to its importance. And even though it's complicated, we pray that we'll wrestle with that because we know that you have loved us enough as a wise creator to give us a uh, word to guide our lives and to help us to understand your purpose. And so we know it's worth it to, to wade in and to think deeply about Scripture. And we pray that you'll guide us by your Holy Spirit and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But the, the, one of the first courses that you take in Bible college, I, when I started uh, Bible college, I was uh, doing it by correspondence in the early 90s before there was the Internet. So, you know, I was doing a lot of essays. And uh, the, one of the first courses that you take is, a, is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Then homiletics. Hermeneutics is the principles of Bible interpretation. And so it teaches you to think about things like manners and customs, which is very important in this passage. You know, to know things like the fact that in their first century culture, if a woman's head was uncovered, it was the same thing as saying, I'm available. So a married woman who came to church without a veil or a head covering was communicating something to people that was not good for her witness. So that's part of the idea in this passage but so when we we read scripture there are important ideas that we bring to it to help us understand uh, uh, how to interpret it you know what's timeless and what's uh, maybe something that was particular to them that now has changed and it talks about men uh, with long hair or men, men uh, covering their head so it says like a man shouldn't cover his head in worship and I remember going on a mission trip once uh, with a group of people, and when we gathered to pray, one of the students was wearing a ball cap, and one of the older adults wigged out, you know, later on. He's like, hey, you need to tell that kid not to uh, wear a ball cap when we pray. And I thought, well, you know, you also probably shouldn't get angry at this kid who left home to come on a mission trip and has no idea and we'll look at this later, but like, why is it okay? Where does the idea come from that a ball cap in public is offensive? 
But now women don't, no woman in this room is wearing a veil or a head covering. So that's uneven, right? It is uneven. So I'm going to say that I would not wear a ball cap into certain places because I know that it is offensive to people's sensibility. But that sensibility is not necessarily scripturally derived or else we're uneven. Or else every woman in the room is currently in sin, which I don't believe based on this custom. But it's complicated. And so when we read this, we, what I want to do is when I'm in my study, get to the sense of what is underneath this that's timeless and helpful and that you can go home and say this is a helpful discipleship practice for me so some of it is understanding their customs and so when I was thinking what's the big idea what was wrong in the congregation at Corinth that Paul addresses and really what happens is that he says it's just like in other places where he will say now about this issue he doesn't say that but it's the same reality here there is an issue and the issue is non-conformity The issue is that people are causing disruption in public worship because of some sort of little rebellion in their heart. It's like there's something in me that is not going to surrender to even to uh, what's an understood norm among us. I'm going to act outside of that, and part of it is what we've already seen, that that they had a sense of um, that liberty meant that I'm free to behave in ways that, in this case, it's not necessarily immoral, but disruptive and suggests uh, some sort of immorality. And so when he writes to them, he is definitely addressing a congregational situation that, in a sense, has been they're borrowing something from the society around them that reduces their unity, that reduces their a holiness, and so that's why he talks about that. So when we read, uh, 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 you know, one assumption I would make is that a growing Christian has to be a Bible reader. If you're going to grow in Christ, you must be a Bible reader. And so when you read some passages in Scripture, they will not necessarily resonate with you at first. Sometimes the reason is because we are in a culture that proposes ideas that are different than the ideas that we find in the Bible about uh, men and women, for example, about gender issues, for example. I mean, that's uh, very obviously something that's under attack in a society like the one we're part of. So when we read some Bible passages, we'll find that doesn't resonate. Or it may disagree with what you're learning socially in the wider world, or it may aggravate you. Sometimes you may read a passage of Scripture and the first impression that it makes on you, if you're honest, and I think honesty is an important part of discipleship, is that it aggravates you. It sort of grates on you. Or it may confuse you at first, like reading this. Hopefully at the end you won't be as confused. Some uh, personalities are avant-garde. There are probably half the people in this room, that's your personality. Performing arts, free thinking, 
when you read the story of the prodigal son, I love Tim Keller's version of that that he wrote. It's a book called Pro The Prodigal God. It's a great book. But he says basically, essentially half of the people in the world would probably be like avant-garde. They're free thinkers. They tend toward liberal thought more so. And then you have half the world that's maybe very similar to the older brother in that story who's a traditionalist and who toes the line and who doesn't push back. But neither personality type is wrong. It's just the way that you're going to interact with the world. And so maybe when you read the scripture, your first impulse is to sort of push back. And, or maybe, as a lot of people are, you're in some exploratory stage and you're trying to understand how something that feels archaic could align with contemporary cultural developments. I think a lot of people are in that place where they're like, yeah, I sincerely do want to believe and interact with the Scripture and be uh, helped through it, but also it just doesn't feel like it uh, matches the modern understanding or perspective or where we've gotten to at this point in history. So I'm just speaking honestly about where people are when they try to read the Bible. Hopefully you really want to obey the Bible, but maybe you struggle with tough passages like this. That's me. I do want to obey the Bible. But when I read a passage like this, I'm like, what does this mean? <laughs> you know, how, does this how do we practice this? How do we get through some of the inconsistencies that we see? And so that's what I hope we'll find some help with in uh, this passage today. So... How do you, uh, what do you do when you feel like pushing back against a biblical text? That may not be how this uh, hits you at all. But if you, if you come to a passage of scripture and you're like, I, I feel like, no, I don't want to, you know, that's not what I want, how my life to be. What do you do? Well, here, here are some ideas about that. Do this instead. If you're a nonconformist, if you're like, hey, my heart really is to push back against that idea, here are some ways that you can read the Bible and hopefully be helped by it if you're sincere. First, look for the clearly timeless biblical idea. Like in this passage, there are some clearly timeless biblical ideas when I read it. One is that God is creator. That's a timeless biblical idea. There is no other creator, there's only one creator. And that creator ordered the world, and he ordered it so that men and women related to each other in specific ways that he outlines here. And particularly, we're going to see husbands and wives, because I think that's what's in mind in this, uh, in this passage. God ordered the world. The Bible says, Numbers 23, 19, he's not a man that he should lie. In other words, God didn't uh, begin one way and have at some point to correct course and go in a different way. So God's character is timeless, and the world as he intends it is a reflection of his character. God ordered the world. He's not a man that he should lie. God had an order in mind for marriage relationships that puts the husband under the responsibility of being the spiritual leader in his home. The husband is intended by God. A, here's God's best design for any person's home is that both of the people that get married would be born again. They would both know Jesus Christ in a real transformational way and that the man would lead his, his family 
in their spiritual quest to, to, disciple, uh, to disciple them, to love them, to put the imprint of God on his home. That's what we see in, in the scripture. It hasn't changed. A male person in the biblical narrative was the first human being, as we said. God, the Bible says God formed him from the dust of the ground. God formed this person. And, and what we take away from that is that humans were a special, unique aspect of creation. That God breathed into him the breath of life. And, and that God said about people that they were made in his image. So both the man and the woman were made in the image of God because the woman was taken out of, out of the man to be... We, we, we use the phrase complementarian to describe the theology of people that believe that the husband and wife relationship is that she complements, not with an I, but with the E-C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, complement. That she uh, uh, assists, aids, blesses. Does he also assist, aid, and bless? Well, if he's a decent human being, yes, that's what he does too. But God gave her a role in relationship to him that's unique, and God's purpose for us is that people would be born again and living out their uh, pathway in discipleship together, and that the man has the most responsibility for that under the roof. He is the, the leader in that regard. But the woman, it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, <coughs> excuse me, is an heir together with him of the grace of life. Heir together with him of the grace of life. Equal. Not, not less than, equal. An heir together with him, but with a different role. His role, he's going to be answerable one day for his family's leadership. He is going to be answerable to God one day. And so some of this, you know, for those who are single in the room, the way this informs your discipleship journey is don't do less than God's best in trying to find a human being to get married to. Find that person who also loves Jesus and don't compromise on that because all that you'll find on the other side of it otherwise is heartache. All you'll find is something less than what God's best uh, plan for you would be. So God creates people. He made people. These are like the big obvious uh, truths, I think, in this passage. What does headship mean? It does not imply that every man has authority over every woman. That's why I think when you read this passage, you have to read it to say, that it's talking about husbands and wives uh, specifically. Because you men aren't in authority over my, my wife, and I'm only in authority over her in the sense of God's going to hold me accountable for how I love her and lead her and bless her. There's a sense in which a congregation has authority. This congregation has authority in the elders that it chooses and the leaders that it decides on. The Bible says you submit to those people uh, out of fear of God but then the Bible says at the same time we submit to one another in the fear of God and, and because we love each other so there's this mutual sense of submission and surrender and so it could never be that when the Bible talks about headship that it's implying that husbands uh, lord it over their wives that's not what it's implying Margaret Thatcher had uh, this great quote she said 
being a leader is like being a lady. She said, if you have to tell people you are, then you aren't. So being a leader is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, then you aren't. Well, I would say the same thing is true about the idea of husbands as we lead our families. If we have to insist that we're the leader. And we, you know, I've, um, this idea of complementarian, I believe it. You know, I believe it's a scriptural idea. But I also think it's easy for men to abuse in a marriage relationships. So that they, um, in fact, I've seen people who, in their immaturity, and I heard someone talking about this this week or last week in a podcast, the idea of, um, he called it aggressive complementarianism, where the person um, is a jerk, <laughs> basically. There's no other way to express it. And he, he says that, this was um, Barnabas Piper, he said, to be the head of the household is to serve the most. It is to lay your life down first. It is to be the first to sacrifice. It is to be the first to apologize. It is to be the first to say, I don't know. It is to be the first to acknowledge someone else's gifts. He says, all the humble things. All the humble things. Headship has nothing to do with abusive, manipulative control. So the other view that people hold about marriage is called egalitarian. So complementarianism is the idea that made, uh, God made people. He made a man and a woman. He put them in a relationship to each other. When they marry each other, the man is responsible. The man is responsible. That God, not that the woman also for her own life doesn't have a responsibility, but in marriage, you, husband, are the one who is responsible to love and lead and to make sure that your, your family is being discipled and shaped into what what God God's intent is. So the egalitarian idea is that people are equals. The way it uh, fleshes out in uh, congregational life is that a person would say there's no limit to what it means to be female, and so consequently, a uh, female could be a pastor of a congregation. And complementarians would say no, there is a limit because God gives qualifications, and those qualifications talk about male leadership in those roles. And so we're uh, expanding a little here in this topic to help us think about why we do the things we do. Why do, why do things look the way they do? Well, because we believe that God created and ordered the world in a particular way. So if you come to a passage like this or another passage and it's uh, difficult for you to absorb, I think this is the first thing. Look for the clearly timeless biblical ideas but secondly wrestle with the cultural implications you'll probably at the end of this go you didn't talk about something i thought was important i'll be happy to try to talk about those things with you later but um i probably won't talk about everything you think is important in this passage but the, to to get to um the essence of it i think these are some important truths wrestle with the cultural implications so if it if it is wrong for men to wear hats in church or have long hair, why is it okay for women to either have their head uncovered or worn down? Why? Because there were culturally informed ideas that were true about this uh, situation in the first century. John Piper said, are kilts in Scotland sinful? That's pretty deep, isn't it? 
No, why? Because it's a culturally... Like, if, a, if I came to church in a dress, you would say, man, the pastor's cheese has slipped off his cracker. You know? We need to have him looked into, you know, and see what's going on with him. But if in Scotland a guy shows up with a, a kilt and a codpiece and all the stuff that they wear... We'd be like that, and bagpipes, we'd be like, that's perfectly normal. That's what it looks like, you know, to be in Scotland. Are long earrings on men in uh, Papua New Guinea sinful? This is John Piper again. No, it's a cultural expression that we don't uh, uh, practice. Why don't we wear what people in first century Palestine wore? Why don't we? I mean, uh, I've been to other countries like India, and I thought their climate is very similar to here, and I would love to wear what they wear because it's like this really um, comfortable linen and stuff. And, the, you know, I'm like, I wish I could wear that everywhere because it just looks like a lot more comfortable than denim, you know, when it's 100% humidity. But people have cultural practices and... and um, I read this quote to you before. I'm going to read it to you again. This is from Gordon Fee and Stewart in a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And they discuss why relating to some biblical concepts can be so challenging. It is extremely difficult to be consistent precisely because there is no such thing as a divinely ordained culture. Did you hear that? He says it's hard to be consistent because there's no such thing as a divinely ordained culture. He says, cultures are in fact different not only from the uh, first to the 21st century, but in every conceivable way in the 21st century itself. So, we, you remember, maybe you do or don't, we talked about this idea before that you could go somewhere else in, the, in North America and find that there are cultural taboos and issues that you know, people practice that are completely different than they are in the region that you live in. So he says, there's not a divinely ordained culture. So when you read about the culture of the first century, it's not, the, uh, it's not their practices at that time that are stuck in some moment that we have to observe forever and ever. But there are timeless truths that don't ever change. And so... When we read the Bible, we, that's what we are trying to understand. What is timeless and what is cultural? The church is, uh, this writer named Stephen Um said, a progressive cultural institution. I agree with that. Its beliefs do not change, but it is constantly adapting itself to the changing historic and local environment in which it exists. So he, he says it is a... Um, a, a change in the church itself is a progressive cultural institution so its beliefs do not change this is what I say but it's constantly adapting itself to its change in historic and uh, local environment in which it exists which is true it used to be okay the first church I pastored it was expected that every Sunday I would wear a jacket and a tie every Sunday their norm was and there are still places that like if you stood in the pulpit without a tie and a jacket on, even though it's going to be 90 degrees today, you know, you're still supposed to wear a sport coat. 
that that was the expected. And they're, like I say, places still, I hope their air conditioner is like top notch if you're going to wear a coat when it's 90. Because why? Why are you doing that? But think about this. Did the, did the uh, disciples in the first century wear ties? Did Jesus wear a tie? No, he didn't. So sometimes we adapt ideas that they may, it may be what's expected. It may be okay where we are, but it's not, it doesn't determine holiness. It doesn't determine what's uh, true or right. I saw, I was uh, asked to go on an interview with a guy who was candidating to be pastor of the a church, very informal like this one. Which, by the way, I like. If I never had to wear a tie again in my life, I would be perfectly okay with that. I went on this interview because uh, I was friends with the outgoing pastor. It was a unique situation. They were interviewing a guy who had been serving as interim uh, for a little while and got into this conversation about uh, equating attire with uh, morality. And it was the most fascinating thing to, to watch because this person had a high sense of that, but that church didn't. So... When you we think about the scripture and what it teaches in the culture in the first century church, members were flagrantly disrupting the congregation's peace to create a sensation through adopting worldly customs in their physical appearance. That's what's happening in this passage, is is in part. That's the part of it that Paul is like when he's talking about. Uh, is it against nature for a man to have long hair? And when he's talking about head coverings or not head coverings, some of it was because when the uh, people were compromising some of the standards that were accepted in the congregation, they were there was just a sort of a inherent rebelliousness in their in their spirit. That he's like, can't you put that aside? Uh, obnoxiousness is not a fruit of the spirit. Obnoxiousness is not a fruit of the Spirit, neither is outrageousness a fruit of the Spirit. So he's saying, just put that aside for the best of everybody else. Wrestle with the cultural implications that you find in a passage. And then, uh, thirdly, keep your heart conditioned to seek the Lord. Keep your heart conditioned to seek the Lord. Because this, you know, I titled this message, The Bible Speaks to Nonconformists, because there are probably... 50% 50% of us in this room again whose like, uh, impulse is always to sort of push back against things. So how do I come to a difficult passage, which you may leave unsatisfied. You may say that. You didn't really get to stuff. Okay. But how do I come to any passage and benefit and go, go forward at, in my discipleship? Keep your heart conditioned to seek the Lord. God works in the context of our contemporary condition. So uh, I I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. It popped up this week in, um, you know, uh, on Facebook from something long ago. He says, we don't become Christians in a social or cultural or political vacuum. Jesus was born under three conditions, Roman power, Greek, Greek culture, and human sin. He says, those were the three conditions that Jesus was born under. Roman power, Greek culture, human sin. So we don't live under uh, two of those conditions, do we? We don't live under Roman power, right? We live under American democracy. 
We don't live under Greek culture. There are influences of it because it was a powerful, uh, you know, reality in the first century that had some timeless ideas. But it's not what shapes you now. But you are practicing discipleship in the conditions that prevail, which is that you are part of a republic or democracy with its liberties and freedoms. And you're influenced by popular culture and all sorts of other issues in North America now. That's the context for your discipleship. And so sometimes we're, we, you know, we can easily get hung up into things uh, that are you know, hard for us to read, but really what God is asking is for you to be faithful to him in the context that you live in now. So God works when my attitude is one of surrender. He works in the present contemporary conditions. He works when your attitude is an attitude of surrender. So the question for me as I come to Scripture is whether I want to experience the work of God's Spirit. That is the most important question when you read the Bible. Why are you reading it? Are you coming to it because you want to experience the work of God's Spirit? That's a, a, the correct attitude and the right healthy one. Am I coming to sit in judgment over the Bible? Or am I saying I understand that the Bible sits in judgment over me? See, that's the correct posture. is to say the Bible sits in judgment over me. I don't sit in judgment over it. My job is to try to understand it and to relate to it. But ultimately what I want to do is say, God, what is it that you want for my life from, this, uh, from, from your truth that you've revealed? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who carefully seek him. So th this is the posture, the attitude in the heart of somebody that God can bless, is someone that says, I believe you, I believe who you are, I believe that you're truth, that you expressed and are embody truth, and so I come to you with the, this humility. As much humility as I can muster, I bring it to this, uh, the reading of the Bible. And the attitude in my heart is, I want to know you. I want to thrive in a relationship with you. I want to experience you and your best for me with all of our struggles and challenges. And then God won't coexist with our rebellion. When we think about keeping our heart conditioned to seek the Lord, that's something you need to know, that God's not comfortable uh, with, your, with rebellion in us. It's what alienated humans from God to begin with, was rebellion, the idea that you can just choose and pick your, your pathway. So if we wanted an answer to what the Bible teaches, a couple of fundamental things, I think, from this Scripture passage is that it's saying that, that uh, they were guilty of some disruptive shenanigans. Shenanigans. And God was like, cut it out. Cut it out. It's not helpful to the congregational life. That's what Paul is saying. It's a little confusing where he says at, uh, in verse 16 that he says that uh, we don't have any other custom. Some translations will say there's no other custom than the ones we're describing for you. This is how things normally work. And if you don't fit into that, then you're outside of the best for your, your congregation, for your brothers and your sisters. And hopefully you love them and you want them to flourish too. And so he's really kind of saying, this is for you, but this is not about you. 
and that's a good attitude to keep. This is for you, but it's not about you. You're one of a bunch of people that it's about. Uh, like somebody said, one-eight billionth of this is about you, right? One-eight billionth. That's how many people there are approximately on the earth. I don't know who counted them, but this, this is for you, but it's not about you. So the Corinthians were guilty of borrowing practices from the culture that had toxic pagan implications. This is a recurring problem there. A recurring problem was that they borrowed from the culture in ways that had toxic pagan implications. So I, I love this quote from Erwin Lutzer. Erwin Lutzer said, The church has to be in the world the way a ship is in water. He says, When water gets in the ship, you're in trouble. And that's the way the church is in the world. Same way a ship is in water. It, we don't want it in us. We want us in it. And so it, that's part of the issue. And they were launching a direct attack on God's revealed purpose in gender, identity, and marriage roles. So they're pushing back against something that God says, this is timeless. This is not something that they're out here somewhere I'm going to find that I made the wrong call about. No, God made the right call from the beginning because God revealed what people were supposed to be like. He did. He created the world. He gave it its meaning. He's never going to reassign that meaning. It's always going to be the same in the way that he shaped people and why he made them male and female. And that's pretty plain. But we're always going to find ourselves in a situation to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what the Jude 1.3 says. I wanted to write to you about this, he says, but instead... I found it was necessary to write to you to encourage you to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So we wrestle with cultural ways that society around us sometimes pushes back, and we contend for orthodoxy. The idea of orthodoxy is what did the apostles teach that is incontrovertible? What did they teach that's non-negotiable? What do they teach that we commit to no matter what century, what country you live in? Those are, that's what we lock on to. And so from this passage, what we, you know, I think can see is that the Bible is saying God's creator, you order your life under him, and you function, you know, peacefully in the society that he made you a part of with the understanding of your personhood as it's been assigned by God himself. The Bible is a difficult book. People are complex beings. What did you expect? What did you expect? A simple book with complicated people? No, it's complicated. But uh, God will never bless rebelliousness. When we have uh, to constantly push back against forces that... um, well, we do have to constantly push back against forces that would shape us in worldliness. And so we constantly keep our hearts soft and teachable. I think, that it, it, are you concerned about being a disciple for real? Then keep your heart soft and teachable. When you approach a, a passage that's difficult, just read sources. I read, I don't know how many translations this week, comparing uh, this passage with it itself that's a good practice if you want to read the bible and understand it bible hub is a good uh, place to go 
I have Bible software that uh, I paid for back in the day and add to occasionally. And, you know, good Bible software helps, but Bible Hub, just go there. It'll give you like eight translations. Read them, compare them, and, and all that does is demonstrate that even though this is hard, I care. I want to uh, understand it and relate to uh, God's Word and His truth. I read uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 3 and 4 in prayer this week, and it, there was a recurring phrase there, and here's what it said. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. Listen to that. It's from the psalm. It's based on the experience of the Hebrews. Today, he says, if you will hear my voice, do not harden your heart. And then he says it over and over and over again. <coughs> Excuse me. Go and read Hebrews chapter... <coughs> I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Today, if you'll hear my voice, don't harden your heart. And I think that's the uh, position that God will bless let's pray father thank you for the scripture thank you for inspiring it and giving it to us as a a gift help us to treat it uh, just like that that it's a gift that you've given that uh, is going to help us again and again and god soften our hearts and help us that we can listen to you and obey you and we pray it in jesus name amen